was a Bitcoin. What is up, Bitcoiners? I want to tell you guys about this awesome conversation I just had with Chris Geimer. Chris is the co-founder of Snappa, which is a really cool application that enables someone who is not Photoshop or a design centric to be able to create all of the design materials that a startup trying to operate on the internet needs. There are a lot of players in this space and Snappa is emerging as a really cool one. What makes Snappa even more interesting is that they are using BTC as their reserve asset and it has enabled them to weather the COVID-19 and the 2020 and 2021 kind of economic downturn extremely, extremely well and has enabled Snappa to thrive. Chris has also created an amazing Bitcoin dashboard called Bitbo.io. So Bitbo just has everything that you need to know about Bitcoin. It has all the little different parameters, all the fundamentals, all of the derivatives, the price, the hash rate, it's all in one place. You even have an awesome news feed there that pumps out a bunch of great content from Bitcoin Magazine. So I highly recommend checking out Bitbo.io. But that is enough of me. You guys, I think you're going to like this interview a lot. We get into who Chris is is what is happening around the world and why Bitcoin is so important for the future of humanity. You guys are going to love this one. Let's just get right into the episode. Scarce, recognizable, and fungible sound. Bitcoiners, welcome back to the Bitcoin Magazine podcast. I'm sitting across from an amazing Bitcoiner and entrepreneur, Christopher Gimmer from Snappa and Bitbo.io. Chris, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for having me. So Chris, first time on the podcast, I know that you've been a big Bitcoin Magazine fan. I'm a huge fan of what you're doing both at Snappa and at Bitbo. Why don't you give the audience just a quick little intro to who is Chris? How do you get into this Bitcoin game? It's a long story. I'll try to keep it short, but essentially started off, my background's actually in kind of finance and accounting. But then after doing that for a couple of years and doing some traveling, I realized that I wanted a bit more freedom in my life and started getting into like podcasts and and reading a lot about entrepreneurship and things like, you know, the four hour work week and this whole concept of like being able to work online and, and operating a business from anywhere was super appealing to me. And so I ended up meeting Mark, who's now my business partner on a lot of projects that we've done together. And then we just started working on, you know, a bunch of ideas. Some of them were failures, some of them were reasonably successful. And then eventually we hit on uh, Snappa, which is our software as a service product. It's basically a graphic design tool for, for non-designers. And that enabled us to quit our jobs and work on it full time. I've always been you know, pretty into investing and stuff like that. So you know, I would, was dabbling in investing in individual stocks and stuff like that. And then as the business started to get more successful, I started to get more and more into investing because I had a bit more capital to deploy. That's when I, you know, came across Bitcoin. And the more I learned about Bitcoin, I just started to get more and more hooked, like uh, a lot, a lot of people in the space. And there was just kind of like a, a light bulb moment when everything, you know, really started clicking. And I started upping, you know, my personal allocation towards Bitcoin. And then after COVID hit in, in March of 2020, our business was sitting on a good amount of, of cash that we were 
you know, kind of saving. We didn't exactly know what we were going to do with it, whether we're going to reinvest more of that into the business, whether we want to just keep it as cash. And similar to Michael Saylor, we kind of viewed that cash as, as a liability at that point. And so we decided to put 50% of our cash balance into Bitcoin, which was pretty fortunate timing because, you know, Bitcoin was like under, under 10K at the time. And then, you know, since then, I've just been continuing to learn more about Bitcoin, continuing to get involved in the space. And then, you know, that led us to, to launch Bitbo as a side project. And we're kind of working on that as well. So that's the short version. I love it. So many kind of connections to my entrance into this space. Personally, for me, it was like personal finance, getting into like the four hour work week was very influential on me as well and Tim Ferriss. But what y'all have done way beyond me is like actually build these different revenue streams and and actually be entrepreneurial. So it's really amazing both to kind of see one building an internet business like Snappa, letting that free yourself and then integrating Bitcoin and then, you know, having that potentially give your business a lot more security kind of in this crazy uh, time. And then even like, you know, leveraging the Bitcoin even more with a product. And I'm a big Bitbo fan. It's my main dashboard at this point, just because you guys deliver, you know, pretty much everything you need to see about Bitcoin on one page. I'm also a big fan of that Bitcoin magazine newsfeed in there. So y'all are doing a great job. But I guess let's talk a little bit about Bitbo a little bit more. I think what you released it a little bit over a year ago. Is that correct? Yeah, I think we launched the first one in November, so not quite less a year, a year. Yet, but okay. Yeah, seems like year. forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess let's talk about the dashboard. What was the impetus behind the dashboard and where do you see it going? Yeah, so what we found was probably the best dashboard at the time was Clark's dashboard. So shout out to Clark Moody. There's kind of like if you wanted to see live stats, there was like one place to view it. And then if you want to see historical stats... And then we found that the data was like really kind of scattered among so many different websites. And so the goal with Bitbo, which obviously we're, we're not quite there yet, was to basically have that, that one-page dashboard where you can really see everything, including a price chart, because at the end of the day, a lot of people do gravitate to that number go up technology and they want to see the price chart. But on top of that, in addition to seeing all the, the live stuff, having historical charts as well. So what we're working on now is basically what we want to do is take the what what Bitbo is right now that that one pager and start adding historical data and and charts to each one of the stats that we're tracking. Uh, so for example, hash rate and difficulty really important so being able to see okay how is the hash rate trending over time are we you know is it going in the right direction obviously there was that china <laughs> hashing uh, exodus so you know if you came to bitbo you would see what the hash rate is right now but there wasn't a lot of context for where was the hash rate at 30 days ago versus today so that's essentially the the near term goal with bitbo is to get all the data that we're currently aggregating on on the live dashboard and adding some historical context on top of that. So, you know, you don't need to jump between like three or four different websites to get a grasp of exactly what's going on with the Bitcoin ecosystem. And what's super interesting for us is like, you know, people are obviously building out on the Lightning Network and now there's kind of layer three stuff being built on top of it. So I can't even imagine what kind of things are going to be built over the next five to 10 years and what kind of data and information we'll be able to, to surface based on that. 
Yeah, I mean, again, you just keep on adding. I know one of the most useful areas is looking at the exchange traded funds and then the price and premiums of those funds. I know for a while you were listing GBTC there. Obviously, that's one of the most important products. I guess that's more on the closed end funds. I'm sorry. That had to be removed and then got added back on. Can you kind of talk to us about what was the deal there when you had to remove GBTC from the dashboard and maybe even dive into like, What's up with GBTC? I know that they've had a negative premium for a long time. I'm curious if you know you look into that at all. Yeah, I don't recall ever removing GBTC. That might have been an, another another dashboard or another source. Maybe that was, but, maybe um, that was my bad. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, so GBTC is interesting because essentially, I'm by no means like a super expert on it, but obviously GBTC was trading at a premium beforehand. And so I think what was was going on is people were using it as a, as an arbitrage opportunity because the funding rates were pretty high. And then essentially, once the the funding rates went negative after the the Elon FUD and, and all that kind of stuff started started happening, GBTC was then kind of trading at at a discount. And I think that was kind of messing with a lot of people's arbitrage trades at the time. And so. I don't know if this has anything to do with it too, but a lot of people are also speculating that ETFs in the US are coming on board. Obviously, ETFs are available in Canada. So I'm not sure if investors in the US are actually allocating to some of those ETFs in Canada, which A, have lower fees. And on top of that, they're trading you know, right around NAV as a normal ETF would. So essentially, you know, I think GBTC itself, the product is, is starting to become a bit less appealing now that there's more options, there's more custody solutions, there's ETFs in Canada. I think it's not surprising to see that trading at a discount now. I think the obviously the the days of GBTC trading at like a 20% premium, I think those those days are long gone now. Yeah, I mean, I think the best GBTC can do at this point is convert to an ETF and just get back to NAV because, I mean, that's probably the only way it happens, but it is interesting. So I'm curious into diving into the Bitcoin for you more holistically, like obviously you use it as a treasury asset for your business. Why is Bitcoin important to you? I know you're a Canadian and the Canadian money printer has been going burr to a pretty fantastic pace at this point. But I guess like just talk about Bitcoin a little bit. Yeah. So pre-COVID, I think, you know, a lot of people were skeptical that governments would eventually start balancing their budgets and that central banks would start unwinding their balance sheets a little bit. And especially after the Fed tried to taper a little bit back in, I think it was like 2018 or 2019. Obviously, that that didn't really work out so well. And so I think even at that time, a lot of people were kind of speculating that like, you know, essentially MMT or, or whatever kind of terminology you want to throw around that is essentially going to be the way that governments are going to fund themselves moving forward. And then when COVID happened, at least for me, I think at that point, I realized that there's there's no way that the central banks are ever going to wind their their balance sheets and governments are never going to go back to you know surpluses and, and and balancing budgets and the consequence of that obviously is that the only way that they can fund themselves is through through printing money the other thing is if you look at interest rates from like you know 1980 to today 
they never kind of get back to a previous high. <laughs> and it's basically just like a straight line, you know, down into the right. You know, now that we're kind of reaching this end game, essentially, where the only thing left is to either print more money or to take interest rates into negative territory, which is already being done in Europe, there's not a lot of options available other than, you know, real estate, putting it in, in an index fund, which, you know, if you just look at the valuations, it's crazy, or Bitcoin. What I love about Bitcoin is all of the properties of being uh, censorship resistant being portable. I'm in the process right now of relocating from Canada to the US and being able to just take your Bitcoin with you and and not have to like, you know, empty out a brokerage account and then open up another one and then transfer to another one. It really is pretty amazing that you can really just take it with you. So that's kind of why I think Bitcoin is important. I don't see Again, I, I don't see governments or, or central banks easing up on monetary and fiscal policy. And I think Bitcoin is is one of the tools that we have available to to kind of protect us against that. The funny thing is that, you know, when you said Bitcoin was like literally the only option, I was having a conversation with my mom this morning. I'm actually at my parents' house right now. They're pretty well invested into real estate in the state that they're in uh, here in the US, and they're going to like buy another house. And I'm like, guys, it's like, stop buying houses. Like I know buying houses is a great investment compared to like just holding cash, but houses are a very crowded trade. Equities don't make any sense whatsoever in terms of their valuations, uh, price to earnings, all that kind of stuff. There is literally only one thing that's cheap and that's Bitcoin. If you look at the 200 day moving average on Bitcoin, like we're well under. So, I mean, everything else is expensive. You know, dollars are getting printed. You need to get out of dollars. You're overly exposed to real estate as it is. It's time to like really allocate to Bitcoin, guys. Like, don't put that whole house into Bitcoin. Like, seriously, don't buy the house. And I'm still trying to convince them. But if you actually understand Bitcoin, then it really becomes the only option. Then everything else just looks so much less appealing. But if you don't understand Bitcoin and Bitcoin's a scary internet money still, then you know, you have to compromise at this point because dollars are bleeding and you just have to get out and get into something else. I think the only problem with with Bitcoin is like, you know, let's say like your parents, for example, if you're kind of living off of your nest egg and you need to, you know, withdraw some funds or whatever, the volatility, I think, does scare the shit out of a lot of pe uh, people. Whereas if you have that long-term time horizon and you have some some cash flow that's sustaining you and you know bitcoin at that point like the risk is a lot lower fundamentally if, if you look at you know bitcoin five to ten years from now it's probably going to be more stable than it is now but you're also giving up a lot of that upside right because we're we're, we're the only the ones crazy enough to <laughs> embrace uh, the volatility but i mean at the end of the day you don't get 100 200 annual compound and growth rate without suffering a, a bit of uh, volatility along the way. So for my parents, for example, I just, you know, I got them to allocate a, a percentage of their, their portfolio. And the funny thing is, you know, as, as number has gone up, they keep asking me if they should put more in. So I think the important thing is just to get a little bit, maybe, you know, even if it's like 5% or something like that and watch that grow over time. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I do feel like you're right that the best way to convince them is to just say, hey, put a small amount that does not matter whatsoever 
and then have them come back to you like, damn, I should have bought more. <laughs> so that's <laughs> yeah. probably the best way to convince them. But unfortunately, then they, you know, they should have bought more and just listen to you all the way when you were really recommending like, hey, allocate to this thing. For sure. Yeah. You know, the house thing is a bit scary now too, with all these like eviction moratoriums. And of course you've got like property taxes and- Is it even your own property? Yeah. So again, if you, if you just compare as a savings vehicle or as a, as a store of value, I mean, you, you really can't compare the properties of Bitcoin to, to real estate. So like, let's talk about your move a little bit. Why are you leaving Canada? What's that process like? Has Bitcoin helped you in that process? I'm assuming you're probably trying to like liquidate other assets. You want to compare and contrast a little bit more? Like, I guess, hit me with what this this move is like. And is there a brain drain coming out of Canada? Because you're not the first person I, I've heard of trying to get out. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because when we're at the Bitcoin conference, we went out for dinner one night and there happened to be uh, quite a lot of Canadians there. And all but one of them were were actively <laughs> in the process of, of moving or, or, or trying to get out. For me personally, I've one thing I've always really liked about the United States is that there's some kind of geo-arbitrage and there's different states have different things to offer, different mentalities, different people. Whereas Canada is pretty much, no matter where you go across Canada, it's pretty much all the same. And, you know, I was, I was really against these forced lockdowns. I really didn't think that, that it was a good idea. From what I saw with, with Canada, I saw that it was going to get, um, you know, there's going to be more lockdowns. It seems to get, it, se- it seems to be getting more authoritarian. Taxes are, are really high in Canada, and I don't feel like we're really getting the adequate services for those taxes as well. And fundamentally, I just didn't agree with the direction that that Canada is going in. And then, you know, if we look at the states, if you look at Texas and Florida, it's very different from, you know, what's happening in states like New York and, and California. So I felt like there was more optionality in terms of being able to go to different places that are more aligned with kind of my thinking. And then weather is actually a, a big one too. Like I've been coming to Florida for the past few winters. And uh, I'm definitely not a winter person. So for all those reasons as well, there's definitely seems to be more opportunity in in the States as well. It's a bit more entrepreneurial. So, I mean, in a nutshell, it really just aligns better with with my philosophy and and kind of where I want to lay down some roots. And so for all those reasons, uh, I'm kind of in the process of moving here. Awesome. Well, I mean, hey, I personally, I think a lot of people prior to 2020 saw the US and other Western countries on like a similar spectrum. And then 2020 showed why the US is actually different. And in my opinion, it's not voting that makes the US special. It's actually states' rights. The fact that these states have proper, have the ability to meaningfully differentiate themselves from a jurisdictional perspective. And then on top of that, the people living in the country can take their property and then they can move with their property without changing their phone number, without changing their brokerage account, without changing their bank account. They can do all of that. They can have a meaningfully different jurisdiction and then they don't have to ask permission to do any of that for the most part. Whereas if you want to leave Canada, you have to do a lot to actually make that happen. And that's where I think Bitcoin changes the world because Bitcoin brings that kind of like state to state arbitrage in the US and it brings it everywhere. Because if you have your value in Bitcoin and you can 
kind of start negotiating and finding the best jurisdiction, you can bring your value with you without, you know, bleeding too much of it, without losing too much of it, without having to sell everything and then reestablish yourself somewhere else. It really is like that impactful of a technology. And I, I think, you know, jurisdictional arbitrage, like that's, that's what this is all about. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. And and again, like that's why I, I love the States is that moving countries is a huge pain in the ass. It, it, it hasn't, it hasn't been easy or smooth. So yeah. So like if I ever had to move again, I'd rather be from one state to another rather than than one country for another. It's interesting too, because I first got into Bitcoin in like 2017 and it was buying Bitcoin on, on Coinbase or whatever. But it wasn't until I started, you know, like actually taking self-custody, running my own node, actually sending transactions. I feel like that's when you really start to see the, the power of it. Again, it's just going to be really interesting to see how, how things evolve over the next 10, 20 years when uh, a bunch of people have their wealth in a bunch of multi-sig vaults and and what what that's going to do. And I have high hopes. I'm a big sovereign individual fan. Uh, I've read it multiple times, showed it many times. And I think that that thesis is about hyper-Bitcoinization and people putting their value into multi-sig vaults and really getting a lot more expensive to kind of tax and, and keep down. But part of that book too is governments are going to fight right? Governments oh, yeah. are going to try yeah. to stay relevant. They're going to try to hold on to their seniors. They're going to try to hold on to their tax base, all this kind of stuff. What are your predictions for Canada? Do you have hope for Canada or are, is Canada kind of like too far gone down this, this kind of like fiat process? The thing that worries me about Canada is that there's a lot of people that are kind of advocating for <laughs> what is happening. And, you know, it's like, there's something like anytime there's something wrong and I don't want to stereotype here. There are some like really great Canadians. There's some, there's some awesome entrepreneurs in Canada, but I'm just saying in general, it seems that if there's a problem. So for example, like right now, the housing is just completely unaffordable in, in, in Canada for, for most people. And so they want government to take more of a role to, to regulate. Right. And so the healthcare system pre COVID was already like essentially crumbling and it was COVID I basically has exposed the system. Nurses are, are working in like pretty terrible work environments and, and aren't getting paid that much. And so again, you know, the, everyone's answer is, well, the government needs to do more stuff. The answer always seems to be like the government needs to take more of an active role. They want, they're talking about federalizing childcare and all this kind of stuff. The short answer is, I think it's only going to get worse just because I think the average population there just wants more and more government control and they want government to handle more and more stuff. And I used to work in the government, believe it or not. And so being on the inside, like I've seen just how inefficient the majority of it is. And so I don't really see a scenario where having more government control, vaccine passports is going to, you know, help that situation. I I see it only getting worse. So that's you know one of the the many reasons why I've chosen now is probably a, a time to get out. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, again, I look at Canada, I look at the UK, I look at Australia, I pretty much look at all the Commonwealth countries, and they're all doing the same thing. And this cognitive dissonance that the most expensive, most fucked up markets are the ones where government is the most involved in is absolutely insane. It's like. 
every single area where the government has their hands in is ballooning in terms of price, crashing in terms of quality. And everyone thinks that we need more government intervention, even in the US, like this idea that the government can't fix these things. This is a market issue that needs to be solved by the market that is stuck on people's head. And like even healthcare in America is absolutely fucked up. It's one of the most regulated industries whatsoever. My brother is training to be a doctor and is going through just absolute hell. The way that they treat young doctors, residents in the medical industry in America is frankly disgusting, right? But it's all kind of built off of like, this existing system, right? Where you need slave labor just to make your system work. That's how fucked up the, the medical system is in the US that you need literally residents working six days straight for 12 hours straight, being on call every single night of that. And then on top of it, you know, getting paid dirt shit. That's the yeah. only way the medical system works. They rely on residents so heavily in order to work in the US. And it's pretty much slave labor. Like in law, they are residents are not entitled to fair compensation. Like they're not entitled to being a normal employee that has the same kind of human rights protections that a normal employee gets. So that's just one example. I mean, that's just yeah, one yeah. example, right? So everywhere you see the government heavily involved, it destroys market incentives. It destroys fair pay. It just teachers. You're yeah. talking about nurses in, in Canada. Like the more the government is, the more fucked up it is, people. Like, come on, wake up. Yeah. This isn't just in Canada either, but one of the things that like really bothered me and I was incredibly lucky that my business was online, so I wasn't, you know, super affected by it. But as an entrepreneur, it like really bothered me where they were just deeming certain businesses, quote unquote, non-essential. Meanwhile, I would be in like Costco or, you know, Walmart and the business is like freaking packed, right? And everyone can buy anything, but then, you know, the little small mom and pop short stores that have like, you know, super small capacities that could have easily been open. They had to close down because they're deemed not essential. You know, we also had this, the SERB program where the government would, was handing out $2,000 a month checks to people. And so this is kind of similar in the States too, where, what do you know? No one wants to go back to work anymore because they much, much rather be at home collecting money than than having to to go to work. And so people don't underestimate that when you mess with the free market, you're going to create distortions. And it's unfortunate because I totally get it. Like when you're working minimum wage or at close to minimum wage and all of a sudden you're getting a $2,000 check, you know, it seems amazing. The problem though is that that creates more problems further down the line. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing in Canada and a lot of these other places where no one can afford houses anymore because they brought the interest rate so low, they flooded the system with so much money. You know, yeah, everyone got to sit at home and collect $2,000 checks during the pandemic. But now that we're, uh, or they're attempting to open things up, everything is way more expensive. They can't afford anything. It was just a Band-Aid solution. No, absolutely. Like, again, it not only was a Band-Aid solution, it actually just made everything worse, right? So yeah, yeah, they, well, for sure, they, yeah. they shut down these small businesses. And then on the flip side, they effectively kind of put the workforce on the financial opium. Here's your pill. Here's your weekly pill. You don't need to work anymore. Like, we're just gonna, we're just gonna give you all those good feelings anyway. And then on the flip side of that, it's just a really fucking bad come down, right? Yeah. Everything is distorted. And it was weird. I went to sushi last night, restaurant packed, absolutely packed. 
help wanted sign on the door, two people working. It's just wow. insane. <laughs> how is this happening? Right? Like how, how is it that this restaurant that's packed on a Tuesday can't get employees? It blows my mind. And again, people are going to say, oh, the, the market's fucked up. We need more. We need more regulation to get this thing sound. And I firmly believe like it's going to take brain drain. It's going to take civilization crumbling. <clears throat> and it's going to take just utter frustration for anyone to just change their mind. And thankfully, there's Bitcoin. You can just opt out. You can do your little thing, just stacking stats and kind of isolate yourself. And I think, you know, looking back at 2020, the most secure, happy people that I knew were Bitcoiners. Everyone else was a freaking nervous mess. Like I can't imagine going through that. Can you imagine being in like freaking Ontario lockdown and not having Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, well, I have a lot of friends and family that that are still there. And, you know, it was a lot of them were pretty disgruntled. And the, the worst thing is, is like, I, I don't think that's the end of it because they just started lifting some restrictions um, in Ontario. And now they're already talking about, you know, the fourth wave that's probably going to happen in the winter because obviously COVID seems to be pretty seasonal. And I think it, you know, a lot of it depends on airflow, whatnot. So in the, in the winter, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that there's going to be an uptick in, in COVID cases and, and whatever. And so I think the writing's on the wall. There's going to be some sort of lockdown or, God forbid, vaccine passport type stuff going on as well. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely agree. Like the, the, the people that are getting through this the best are the Bitcoiners and the sovereign individuals, essentially. And, you know, I think the government is really creating like a, a two tiered class system where those that are wealthy enough to kind of dodge these, you know, regulations and all their assets are getting pumped up, you know, they're loving it. And, you know, I feel for the people at the bottom that I, I, yeah, I can't even imagine being, you know, a young 20s kid coming out of university with student debt, you can't afford a house, the jobs and the wages just aren't there. Like, you know, it's, it's no reason why you're you're seeing stuff like suicide rates are up and and whatever, because they probably just don't know how they can get ahead, right? You know, Bitcoin is probably one of the few things that, that could actually help them get ahead, which is why we need to keep, you know, spreading the message. Yeah, I mean, again, it is a, a grim future for those who do not have Bitcoin. How do you get people over that? Like In my mind, Bitcoin is literally a new mental operating system for your head, right? Most people right now, they're on the fiat operating system, still mentally. And that's why when you see these people who are vaccinated and frustrated that they're going to be locked down again and lashing out at the perceived enemy, they're doing what is logical in the fiat system, in the fiat-minded sense, right? It's almost illogical to behave that way. You're like, I did everything I deserve. I wanted to. I listened to the state. I listened to science, blah, 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 and I'm still getting fucked. And then on the flip side, if you're on the Bitcoin mindset, you realize that you know all those things are lies. Reality is that markets and freedom are the best way to organize people. And it's like, it's a very, very difficult time to bridge over and like change that mindset. Other than getting people kind of skin in the game, hey, mom, allocate just a small amount where you don't notice or whatever. How are you kind of like talking to people about Bitcoin and, and actually like, let's say orange pilling them, like getting them over kind of that, that hump into like, oh, wow, I need to start questioning what I previously believed. Yeah, that's a tough question because the sad reality is the majority of people 
want security and safety. They kind of just want to follow orders type of thing. You know, I just found in general, like even even before Bitcoin, you know, the people that were always the most successful are the people that like actually question things. They're kind of going against the rules a little bit because a, a lot of rules are are frankly just bullshit, right? And so I think like a lot of the people that gravitate towards Bitcoin already kind of have some amount of like healthy skepticism with government and just the way that the, the world functions, uh, so to speak. And and they, they have that kind of, you know, entrepreneurial nature. What doesn't necessarily mean that like they're starting businesses or whatever, but they just have that free thinking kind of spirit. So I kind of, I tend to somewhat let them come to me or, or if they they say something, you know, like this particular thing like doesn't make sense and they almost like give me an opening, then I'll kind of meet them there and try to cater the pitch to to where they're coming from. Whereas if you, I find like if you just go up to friends or, or random people and you just start like shilling Bitcoin, <laughs> that that strategy tends to not work out well because it's almost like they get dismissive and they, I find a lot of people can can get pretty like salty and bitter about it too because like, you know, they weren't in on it yet. And everyone always thinks that it's too late for, for, for Bitcoin as well. I just try to meet them where they're at. If I see an opening, you know, I kind of try to tailor the, to, to the, the pitch to that. But, you know, what I found is the people that are kind of more open to it or, or kind of asking me questions tend to be much more easier to, to orange pill than the people that are just kind of like running through the motions and and just trying to do as they're they're told kind of thing because it's it's almost like they're admitting that you know what they've been doing was kind of stupid and hasn't been working and it's almost like they don't want to admit that that bitcoin is what it is they they want to just believe it's a it's a scam or it's a ponzi and they get frustrated that people are actually becoming wealthy off of it yeah, well, I mean, hey, th- this conversation is inspiring a, l- a lot of thoughts for me. But I mean, the reality is, is that like a lot of, let's just call it more liberal minded people, trusting the state is part of their political identity. That just makes it really hard for them to uh, to get Bitcoin and has nothing to do with their intelligence. I think Croesus BTC did a, a really great article about why the yuppie elite don't get Bitcoin. And it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with kind of trust in the system, being a rule follower, that kind of thing. So it's going to be really interesting to kind of see how Bitcoin adoption plays out because, you know, so many more, let's just call it libertarian type, entrepreneurial types like it. And, you know, that is a minority of the population, especially in Canada, especially in a lot of these like Commonwealth countries. Uh, so I'm very just kind of intrigued and like, you know, what this adoption story is going to look like. Are Bitcoiners, despite just being people who want to own property, like, are they going to be called terrorists? Are they going to be called these like kind of negative things? Because again, these people, they're seeing their system fall apart, but they're committed to the system. And, you know, they're kind of seem blind to see the faults in the, the system for like a, from a systemic level. I said, I think I said system like six times there, but passing <laughs> it back to you. Yeah. Well, it, it almost reminds me of how they're, labeling the unvaccinated people like a terrorist organization that is like ruining the world. And so I wonder if, like you said, it's almost going to be like the same thing with Bitcoiners, that they're somehow like ruining the system and, you know, screwing everything up for for the rest of us. You know, and fundamentally, at the end of the day, I think like Bitcoiners tend to just be free market people. And, and this is what 
a lot of people don't understand that just because we want to see a free market and we don't want a ton of government control, that doesn't mean that like we don't care about other people and that you know we're selfish. It means that we truly believe that free markets are what actually uplifts everybody and that we think that free markets will do a better job of allocating resources and making everyone better off. And so I think that's kind of what a lot of liberal-minded people don't understand is that they think that more free market or right-leaning people are just like selfish assholes and you know we don't want to pay any taxes and and stuff like that. It's like I'm from Canada like the top tax rate is over 55%. And believe me, I would much rather entrepreneurs allocate more money and start more businesses and hire more people than the government allocate 55% of somebody else's money because I don't think that they've historically done a good job and I don't think that they're they're doing a good job now and I would I would rather the free market allocate the majority of that money. Hopefully in the future we'll bring taxes to a more reasonable level that we're actually getting a good service and let's let the the free market, the entrepreneurs, the private industries handle <laughs> the, the rest of that. So I think you make a really great point there. And just to like quantify that a little bit, right now, common knowledge is that it takes the government in the United States spending $3 for every dollar of growth. If you are an entrepreneur and you couldn't make a dollar of growth with less than a dollar, you'd be out of business. But here we are asking the government to take up to 60% of our income and then take that income and then get a one to three return on it, right? So they're spending $3 for $1 growth in the US. I don't even know if it's that efficient in other states. I'm assuming probably worse. Come on, guys, just do the math at your fellow Canadian, Greg Foss. Do the math. Do, <laughs> do the, the math, math, guys. It's impossible. And you know, all of these fiats are, they're just going to systematically devalue because you run the numbers. It's impossible to get out of the debt at this point. Yeah. I subscribe to the the Jeff Booth thesis and especially also running a software company is that I definitely think that we're just in this state of exponential deflation from technology. And so I think what would happen is if you stopped now, like we, we couldn't do this right now because it would obviously like crash the whole system. But let's imagine a world where you would stop printing money and you would let the free market dictate the interest rates. I think what you would have, what you would see is that prices of everything would, would keep falling. But the other consequence of that is that you probably wouldn't see as many jobs And this is essentially what governments are fighting against, is that technology is removing jobs and therefore they're printing money to bring those jobs back. But if you actually just let the technology do its thing, you know, I think what would happen is instead of, you know, a household with two people working 40 hours a week, you probably have one person working 40 hours, but everything in their life would be twice as cheap or half as expensive. And so even though they're working, you know, half the amount of hours and making half as much money while everything is twice as cheap. And so that's essentially what I believe would happen under a Bitcoin standard with technology increasing at an at an exponential rate, but where you know governments and and central banks are are essentially fighting against that. And so I think that's where you're seeing this like $3 of government spending for $1 of, of growth because it's just impossible at this point. 
Again, yeah. I mean, it's impossible. They're fighting against technology. Every central bank's mandate, it has a jobs mandate, right? Yep. Yep. Guess who invented jobs mandate? Communists. That was part (laughs) of Karl Marx's communist manifesto is a job mandate, full employment. I'm sorry to break it to you guys, but technology is anti-labor, right? Technology is pro-efficiency. I just try to think of myself like this laptop I have in front of me, let's go backwards 30 years. How many people would have take to make three to five podcasts a week to publish 30 to 40 articles a week? I'm pretty much a one-man machine, like making this thing happen. And it's because I have this like massive technological beast of an assistant that can, you know, make this stuff possible. And how many jobs were destroyed in that? Countless jobs. And then on an exponential level. And then here we have a central entity that's trying to manipulate the economy to ensure that maximum people have jobs. Like, no wonder it's fucked up. We're not even getting the benefit of the technological innovation because we have a government trying to kill it, right? We don't even know how amazing the world could be if we actually just let technology do its thing and let the free market adjust, right? Because right now, just everything is just completely distorted. Everything is misallocated. You know, that's why you're you're seeing so much, in my opinion, a lot of the social social unrest is because, you know, obviously the wealth gap and inequality is getting, it's only getting bigger. So, you know, I I think the transition period, unfortunately, is going to be pretty messy. You know, I'm, I'm hoping to be proven wrong on that. But my hope is that on the other side of it, if we actually let things play out as as they should. Hopefully there's some renaissance on, on the other side of that. And people are doing things that they love instead of doing, you know, shitty jobs that they're kind of forced into just to just to get a paycheck. So to keep to keep yeah. the system going. <laughs> yeah. I mean again, fiat is dying. It's gonna be a disgusting and brutal process of that death. But Bitcoin's here to alleviate it a little bit, especially for those who adopt early. So I mean Bitcoin's a life raft here, guys. The fiat system is dying by itself. Coronavirus didn't kill it. The Fed was doing emergency QE and repo facilities far before the crisis. It's been dying. Things have been fucked up. I was talking to Zuby, hardcore libertarian, not so much convinced into Bitcoin, doesn't think about how Bitcoin can practically help the average day person take back their sovereignty. And he's saying, I just want to go back to 2019 when things were normal. And I was like, bro, This is how fucked up 2021 is because 2019 was fucked up. 2019 was already clown world. That's just how bad it's gotten now. We shouldn't want to go back to that. Again, just to reference someone else, Aaron Segal, who's a Bitcoin magazine advisor and a fantastic economist and writer in a podcast he did with me and Jeff Booth, he was saying like, we don't know how good we could have been. Like, There's nothing more insidious than 2% inflation because like, okay, it's 2% inflation this year, but we have no idea where technology could have been if it wasn't dealing with that, you know, for the past 50 years, right? On August 15th, that's going to be the 50 year anniversary of the fiat dollar. You know, we've been dealing with this system for 50 years. So like, what's the compounding distortion of whatever percent inflation over the past 50 years because of fiat money? Like it's, it's more than we can imagine. It's much more than 2%. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. Chris, great having you on the pod. Great ripping about just Bitcoin, about how society, you know, needs to kind of realign. Want to give you uh, a moment to just give a last word to the Bitcoin magazine audience. Uh, The floor is yours. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the pod. 
If you guys want to see a, a good look at what's going on in the Bitcoin ecosystem, check out bitbo.io. We've integrated the Bitcoin magazine feed as well. So you can see all the new articles that the awesome, uh, awesome guys and gals over there are producing. So yeah, just check that out. And if anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, my handle is cgimmer. Awesome, guys. And hey, check out Snappa too. I learned about it recently and it looks like a really freaking awesome product. So if you're not a graphic designer and you want to make some nifty little graphics for your podcast, for Instagram, for uh, for Twitter, all that kind of good stuff, it looks like a really cool product. And y'all are using Bitcoin as your treasury asset, which means that, hey, your dollar to Snappa is going into Bitcoin at some point. So Bitcoiners, <laughs> if, you have to, if you need a solution like that, check out Snappa. But until then... Check me out at CK underscore Snarks on Twitter. Check out Bitcoin Magazine at BitcoinMagazine.com, at Bitcoin Magazine on Twitter, and over at Bitbo.io, where you can get all of your Bitcoin fundamentals as well as our newsfeed. Chris, thanks again to all the Bitcoiners. Catch you later. Thanks a lot. That was fun.